All right, it's springtime, and you know what that means. It means summer is right around the corner, and you don't want to be spending these beautiful days inside cooking and chopping vegetables. No, you want to be outside enjoying fresh spring air, and you can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Because every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, it's dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in what? Two minutes. You choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, vegan, veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. I love Factor Meals. They're absolutely delicious. I don't have to worry about it. They're just in my fridge. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash queerthemusic50 and use code queerthemusic50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Welcome to Queer the Music. The new podcast from Mercury Studios that uncovers the LGBTQ plus anthems that have dominated dance floors and shaped queer lives. I'm Jake Shears, and I'm your host for the series. I'll be unpacking a different track each episode to discover the fascinating stories, histories, and backgrounds to each tune with the help of queer artists who wrote or performed them. I wanted to be a part of this series because I've always questioned the idea of queer music in the first place. Is it a label meant to box us in? Is it something you can willingly create? Does it even exist? What I do know is that people on the LGBTQ spectrum have been making incredible popular music for decades. So how has the process and reaction to it changed over generations? And what do the artists themselves think about it? I'm after the fine details, and I want to know the nuts and bolts of how specific songs are created. I think it's important to begin to talk about what this lineage and legacy is, and start to figure out how, as LGBTQ artists, we fit into it together. So we're kicking off with a disco track so iconic that it's been included in Rolling Stone's 500 Best Songs of All Time. I'm taking you right back to the glitter ball heyday of 1978 when gay black diva Sylvester James released Mighty Real and set dance floors on fire across Europe and America. I wanted to learn more about the life and times of this wonderful artist, so for this episode, I was lucky enough to be joined by Sylvester's longtime collaborator and dear friend, Jeannie Tracy. Jeannie was right by Sylvester's side for so much of the ride, and getting to talk to her was illuminating and also heartbreaking. But first, I want to find out the origin story of the track that made Sylvester a superstar. So who better to talk to than sociologist Josh Gamson, whose biography, The Fabulous Sylvester, brings him so vividly to life. My understanding of how Mighty Real came to be is that Sylvester and Tip Wirick, James Wirick, who was a collaborator, came up with this tune that was kind of a mid-tempo R&B ballad, brought it in to a rehearsal where they were always bringing in songs to try things out, and Sylvester apparently arrived late to that session when they, he heard them playing this song that Tip had brought in, he told them, no, not like that, like this. And he had in mind disco, and he sort of stomped his foot till they got over their resistance to turning it into a disco song and apparently just spewed some lyrics out, not thinking a whole lot about it, and la-la-la'd his way through some of it, and that was the genesis of the song. And the lyrics are very simple, but what do you think that Sylvester was trying to get across with those lyrics? What, what do you think you know, you make me feel mighty real means. Well, first of all, it's a song about meeting someone in a bar and going home with them. And that experience, uh, that sexual experience, making you feel more of yourself to feel real. I think the song is about first authenticity and living authentically in a very simple way, loving who you want to love. And 
It's about the combination of sex and spirit that can happen. The lyrics and the sound are a bit inseparable for me because he's talking about feeling real and the sound is gospel disco. So I always feel a little bit of spirit in the song itself. And I think that's part of the the idea of feeling real is that you feel your full blessed self through the experience that you're describing. But, you know, at its base, it's a song about going home with someone and having sex. And that is a radical thing at that time. And it's the experience of living your authentic self that he's describing. It's just done in a very danceable and kind of simple lyrical way. To say the least. Can you talk a little bit about Patrick Cowley, who is a big part of Sylvester's career, a big part of this? Can you talk a little bit about how Patrick got involved and what he was doing and his contribution to this song and Sylvester's music? Patrick Cowley was a lighting guy at a club that Sylvester used to go to. So they knew each other just from being in that scene together. Patrick turned himself into one of the earliest synthesizer whizzes. And when Sylvester was looking to move into disco, he brought Patrick in with Mighty Real and some of the other songs on the, the Step 2 album to add synthesizer to it, which meant that it had a, a bounce to it that wasn't already there. Patrick was a close friend of Sylvester. They went to bathhouses together. They fantasized about recording an album that was made up of the sounds of men having sex at bathhouses. It's a brilliant idea. You know, they had a life outside of this, and Patrick wound up being very influential in the scene because he helped to create a sound that was distinctively a San Francisco sound. I want to jump back to to Patrick Cowley in a few minutes because I've got thoughts about mm-hmm. just the uh, Disco Sucks movement and stuff, and I've sort of got thoughts and things that you've written about that that I want to go back to. But what kind of reception did uh, You Make Me Feel My Real receive at the time that it came out? What happened to Sylvester's career? Well, it was actually not the first hit off of that album. The first hit was Dance Disco Heat, and Mighty Real was kind of not expected to be the big hit. In fact, some of the people who recorded it said they thought it it sucked. Some people knew they had a hit. So, you know, they weren't necessarily predicting what was going to happen. It became a hit in Europe and then here really quickly. So his career really just took off with both of those songs, really. I mean, Dance Disco Heat is such an amazing song that I think is really underlooked. And, and you know, the recording of that at the Opera House is just like one of the most wild things I've ever heard in my life. I mean, listening to that live record, I mean, that moment to me in that show at the Opera House is where really the I feel like the roof flies off the joint. And would you say that that show at the Opera House in 79 was a peak of Sylvester's career? And could you sort of describe what that show was like and what was happening that night? Yeah, a lot of things came together with that show. I do think it was a real peak because it was such a a difficult time in San Francisco in particular right then. Basically, the way it happened was Sylvester, with that album, became an international disco star really, really quickly. And so for people in San Francisco, that really was like your cousin became an international disco star. That was your (laughs) person. You know, because people had been seeing him perform around town for years at Castro Street Fair at other places. He was a local person, a local icon already. And then he became a national and international icon. So you're already feeling like, oh, my God, our person. And it feels like this is the person that is living the free gay life that we've been trying to create. And he's living it and he's succeeding. People are adoring him. It feels like, you know, you're being adored. So there was a lot of emotion going into that opera house that was on that kind of connection to his success and to the movement for gay freedom that he was embodying. At the same time, there was all kinds of um, anti-gay backlash that was taking shape 
in that same year, there was the assassination of Harvey Milk and George Moscone that was not too long before that opera house performance. There was a, an anti-gay bill that felt like, for a lot of people, like being assaulted in some way. So there was a lot of pain also that was familiar to gay people who had already come to San Francisco because of pain, because of stigma and being, you know, sometimes banished from their homes. I mean, it was a migration out away from something very painful to a place of joy. Sylvester represented that joy. Then there was this backlash and pain again. All of this is coming together right around that opera house performance. So people converged on that from all kinds of places and backgrounds, but they brought that energy and that spirit to it. Someone who is a key part of that amazing concert at the San Francisco Opera House is Jeannie Tracy, Sylvester's close friend and collaborator. That night was Jeannie's first big gig with Sylvester, singing alongside Martha Wash and Isora Armstead, a.k.a. Two Tons of Fun. It was very special. We got there really early, you know, to do sound check. And I remember getting there and looking at the theater. Sylvester was always wanting to do something that was different, that had never been done before. And the Opera House had never seen anything like that before. Going into the theater, looking at the theater and its ambiance and all that. And then I went backstage to see the dressing room. And then I was standing on the stage by myself looking out. And it was empty. And just thinking, oh, my God, what is going to go on here tonight? And then the sound check was amazing. I had a girlfriend with me. And when she heard us sing, you know, after rehearsal, she said, oh, my God, I've never heard anything like that before. Because it was really gospel tinged. I mean, we all came from the same kind of church and the same kind of background. You would feel that energy, that gospel energy, because it was so, so powerful. That show was recorded as an album, uh, Living Proof, which is just an incredible document. And to hear it, it's just a mind blower where it goes. It's so exciting to listen to. It must be great to have that also just documented and have that moment before the show to really stand there and look out And it's sort of sometimes you know that something's about to change in your life. It sounds like that was a moment for you. It was. And during the the performance, oh, my God, or during the show, it was just incredible energy. I really cannot listen to that album today. Even though it was a happy time, it still brings back, you know, memories of that night because... I've never felt that way before, and since then have never (laughs) felt that kind of energy, even though I've done great big shows of 20,000 people. But that Sylvester show, that Living Proof show, was the ultimate for me. And during those days, those were some of the best days of my life, traveling with him and the girls. The girls were funny as hell. They would keep you laughing and keep you on your toes, you know, because I was the newbie then, you know. So going into the, as a listener, getting to hear that record and, and hearing where it goes and hearing that spirit being captured, when you get towards the end of the concert, you've got, you know, dance disco heat, which... I don't know if I've ever heard a recording like that. It's just, it's thrilling. And then you play, you, you make me feel mighty real. Cookies on my feet in the disco heat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And he would call it mighty ill. <laughs> you make me feel mighty ill. <laughs> <laughs> you met Sylvester in, in 79 when he was just really at the peak of his success. Can you remember the first time you met Sylvester before that first show? Do I remember? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he walked in Honey Records where Nancy Pitts and Harvey Fuqua. Harvey Fuqua was with Motown, and he was the genius behind a lot of records. And And they started a record company in Oakland called Honey Records. And so uh, I was, like, answering telephones, and then I was writing songs for a gospel choir at the time. And Sylvester walked in. And all these bracelets and curly hair. And so we were talking. He said, oh, girl, you're so pretty and da-da-da-da. And then they said, oh, Jeannie, this is Sylvester. I said, Sylvester? (laughs) I thought you were a woman. 
<laughs> and I said, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, oh, girl, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how, you know, we got started. And um, they used to rehearse. And so um, we went to see them one night. And what would the rehearsals be like when you were in the room? Was it a party? Was it serious? Rehearsals were fun, but they but they were very serious because he was a stickler for getting it right and making the sound like it was supposed to be, you know. And then when you got on stage, it was another whole nother different feeling, you know, because it's on now. And so you got to get those notes right. And it wasn't about any choreography. We just moved, you know. And then sometimes he would come over and dance with one of us, you know, just come over and mess with us. And basically, he needed that closeness. So he would dance over there where we were because we were on the side of him in the front. And he would dance over and mess with one of us, you know, or dance with one of us. I'm really curious to know what you learned from him, especially about performing. Like, what are those things that you gleaned from those shows and being with him? How did that change you as a performer? He really took me under his wing, and I learned from him how to engage with the audience. He would get within himself, but he never forgot his audience. And I strive to do that now. I love to play with the audience and bring the audience and make them a part of my show. I learned that. I learned, you know, dressing is really important. He saw a picture of me a still photo of me. He said, you see how you look? This is the way you're supposed to look all the time. And also, he was really a stickler for time. I'm a a time person. I really want to be on time for everything. And I, I learned that from him. We all played, but when it was time to get out of business, we, we did that. One of my favorite rules of thumb is, you know, show up on time, be prepared, and have a good attitude. That's right. I think those three things just can go really far. Yeah. He was a difficult person to some, but around us, he was just Sylvester, and he was fun. He was down to earth, and he told me once, don't ever let anyone make you late. He said, you've always been on point and there when you're supposed to, and you do everything that I ask you. I said, because I want people to treat me that way. That's good advice. And when you hear that song, just going back to Mighty Real, how does it make you feel now? I know that you just talked about hearing the live album, uh, you know, when you walked into that room and it just made you emotional. What comes to your mind when you're at the grocery store or you're just out and about and you hear that song? How does it make you feel? makes me feel really, really good. It's just a great song. We've performed it many times. Uh, and then you put that spin on it, that slow spin. He used to do it like the slow way, a portion of it to where they break it down and you just take it where you want to take it. And then they pick that music back up and it's just, uh, it's just a great feeling. Josh, you know, that moment and that that success that Sylvester was really feeling at that time, what do you think that did with Sylvester? How did that change Sylvester? My guess, because I don't really know, but my guess is that it settled things in a way because I see him as somebody who created the light and then stepped into it. That was his whole kind of life trajectory was I'm going to imagine who I want to be and who I think I can be, and then I'm going to step into that. And I think that he, for a very long time, had believed that he was a diva superstar, not necessarily a disco. Disco wasn't the ambition, but it was the way that he got to this thing that he always knew he was going to be. So I would imagine that when you do that, when you've created this vision for yourself and then you become it, It's got to be very satisfying. And one of the ways that I feel like I know that might be the case is that when it declined, he wasn't chasing that same dream again. It was like, I always was, I am a diva, and I did it. And now I can do the next thing. 
Which it's really interesting because when, you know, that song came out and, you know, when Step 2 came out, just pretty soon after that, there was a big backlash with disco. Could you describe what was happening just in the United States, in pop music in general, how disco had permeated the consciousness? I mean, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. And I remember this, I personally remember because I was a teenager when disco was taking over, basically. And what I remember, I mean, I know that, yes, it was all over, you know, radio stations were converting to disco. By the end of it, it was, you know, Ethel Merman doing disco, just everybody was getting in on this because it was so huge. You know, that backlash really culminated at the the disco record burning um, in Chicago, July 79. It started the Disco Sucks movement. I think it was a radio DJ that had a big record burning in the middle of the baseball stadium. Yeah, not just burning, I think blowing up, mm. bringing out disco albums and literally blowing them up. First of all, two things about it. One, that's a few months after the Opera House concert. You know, they're really close proximity. So Sylvester's rise and the anti-disco backlash basically coincide. The backlash, which had been there, I'm sure, for quite a long time, simmering, was mobilized in that uh, Disco Sucks event. Looking back, it sort of feels like some things that are happening now, some familiar sense of they have stolen our culture and we need to do something about it. And the thing that we're going to do is going to be pretty aggressive and going to have elements of violence to it. It felt like anti-black, anti-Latin, and anti-gay, and anti-feminine all in one. It was this sort of assertion of a certain kind of masculinity that was taking place through the hostility to disco. But the interesting thing to me is that it didn't kill disco <laughs> in a certain way. It sort of saved it. It was so oversaturated in the culture, and it was able to kind of go back down underground. And then you, you talk about in, in your book, it, which as a record producer myself, I find it very interesting that, of course, all the budgets go away. And just sound-wise, it's like they couldn't afford the strings anymore. Because strings were so part of disco, just big string arrangements, and those string arrangements cost a lot of money. Right. And the money dried up for that. So then what happened? You get a different kind of sound that's still a disco sound. It's just not called that. And I, I agree. I think it, it went sort of underground. It morphed. The Patrick Cowley kind of sound was not expensive. And, you know, what Sylvester himself did was characteristic, I think, of what you're describing, which is he went over eventually to Megatone Records, which was a local dance label that Patrick was part of real kind of, I was going to say mom and pop, but, you know, pop and pop kind of outfit. And, you know, Sylvester's attitude was, I don't know why they say disco is gone. Like everybody I know is still going out dancing and we're still dancing to something that sounds very similar. And I'm still making music that is dance music. And that sounds quite a bit like what I was doing before. You're right, without orchestra or with some synthesizer version of that. You know, I, I haven't really thought about the idea that the backlash saved the sound. I do think that's right. It's like it sucks for the straight white guys in particular. So they're going to take it away. But what's left is the stuff that we started with and that we loved and that got turned into something else over the commercialization of all of it and the expansion of it out of gay black clubs in particular and, and into the, the white mainstream and into Saturday Night Fever. You know, you mentioned sort of taking it back from the straight white guys. It's how do you think that the fact that Sylvester was gay and out and what we'd sort of now call gender nonconforming, how did that affect his career positively and negatively? Well, it sets some obvious limits on it. You know, he wasn't going to be immediately embraced by a mainstream label, no matter what he sounded like. It put a lot of roadblocks, even when he did get a recording contract trying to figure out how to market him, how to get his albums played on black radio, because it's not just white, straight animosity. It's also environments that were not, in particular, comfortable with femininity from a man. So, you know, it put a lot of obstacles, but that's what I love about his story, is that it's got all these obstacles. It's not just about overcoming obstacles. It's about his queerness, his gender nonconformity or fluidity, his blackness, those were all 
the things that he built his career on. Those are the things that people embraced in the Castro when they heard them, that people were lit up by, queer people in particular, lit up by that sound. And so I know that if he were suppressing any of that stuff, which he did not do, he would not have succeeded. He was just himself. Whatever he wanted to do, he just did it. You know, if he wanted to wear bracelets, if he wanted to wear a dress, he would do it, you know. And I remember the Joan Rivers show, and he he wore this orange wig. I don't know if you saw that. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. And we were on the Tom Snyder show once, on a television show. And Tom Snyder says, oh, you remind me of Little Richard. And he got so incensed. He didn't want anybody to put him in a box. I'm just Sylvester. I'm not a drag queen. Because Joan Rivers said, you're a drag she, He said, I'm not a drag queen. I'm Sylvester. And I said, you go, boy. <laughs> you know, you just couldn't put him in a box. He just had to be whatever he felt like being that day. That's what he was. What kind of issues did that bring or problems with record company, you know, him being out and gay, gender nonconforming? How did that rub up against the industry that y'all were working in? Oh, it rubbed. <laughs> I know I know. you probably heard about the time that he came down the stairs in this long ball gown and everything because they wanted him to play football and, you know, and drink beer. And he said, I'm not doing that, and I'm going to be myself, and if I can't be that, then so be it. And, I, you know, later on he went on to Megatone, who let him be Sylvester, be what he wanted to be, you know. Uh, they had a problem with it even though he was selling records. Come on now. I wanted to talk a little bit about the album Too Hot to Sleep, which I think was 1982 that came out. And Sylvester changed his vocal styling in a pretty major way, uh, sort of on some of the stuff leaving his falsetto behind. Can you tell me about that moment? Well, that moment I talked him into singing in his lower voice. The one song that we did uh, here is My Love, is on that album and he wanted to sing high and I stopped the music and I said look they're not going to be two fish in here <laughs> you have to be the man this time <laughs> <laughs> meaning there are not two women up in here singing so you have to be the man and he smirked he gave this little smirk <laughs> it was so funny he had a rich 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 baritone voice that just was amazing. And he used to tell me all the time that Prince, he said, I think Prince likes me. And I said, how do you know that? He goes, because I hear him doing things that I do. And about a year ago, somebody posted a show with Prince doing, might have been Mighty Real, and Prince did a cover of it during a show. Can you believe that? Wow. I mean, I that's something that I would fall over to see. And I would, you know, bet lots of money that Prince was heavily influenced by Sylvester. And you can really hear it in Prince's vocal styling. There's no doubt. And Prince has a, he would go into that deep, deep baritone voice sometimes that, ooh, you just go, ooh, <laughs> wee, yeah, do that. You know, I even on my first album, I called him in because there was a part in a song that I wrote called I'm Your Genie. It was a part that goes, let me funk with your emotion. Lord, let me, let me. And when he did that part, oh my God, he just took it somewhere and he just went all deep down in Jerusalem and did that, right? He looked at me, he said, girl, did you write that? I said, yeah, I wrote it. And then the song that he wrote, Do You Want to Funk? That was birthed out of my song. I said, you owe me, honey. And it was a huge hit. I said, oh, baby, you owe me because you got that from me. I love that song. Love that song. And, you know, he was doing that a bit with Patrick Cowley, was working on a lot of a lot of this stuff, including that song. And, you know, it seems like Patrick was one of the sort of first people in 
y'all's crew and your group that started getting sick? When did you first become aware of what was happening with, with gay men around you in San Francisco? Well, when Pat got sick, I just thought he was sick, you know. He said, Patrick wants to see you. And I said, well, what's wrong with him? And he said, they don't really know. It's just something they call autoimmune deficiency. And I said, what is that? You know, and you kind of got a sense of what it was, but you really didn't know. And you didn't know that it was going to blow up like it did. And, uh, oh, I love Patrick. Patrick was amazing. On the Living Proof album, when we did Blackbirds, he did these little birds. He had one of those synthesizers that looked like the old telephone operator thing that you put in the board. That's when they first came out. Like he said, "Give me some birds, Patrick." And Patrick did the little birds on you know on the synthesizer and stuff. But they were great songwriters. Patrick was amazing. But it was around that time that they were on tour together, and Patrick started getting ill. Josh, you know, can you just talk about like that moment and sort of what you think was was happening and what was going on in their minds, what they thought was going on versus what was really going on? Yeah. So, you know, this is all happening in such a short time period. It just it makes me sad to think about the success, the opera house. And then a couple of years later, gay men are starting to get sick and you don't know what it is. And Patrick was one of the earliest AIDS deaths in San Francisco and I think probably in the country. And, you know, nobody knew what was going on. There were all kinds of weird attempted explanations at it. I mean, you know, I'm sure you know this history, but, you know, there's your friend and then there's your other friends who are getting mysteriously ill who are showing up with literal stigmata, like the Kaposi sarcoma lesions that are marks on the body. And these are young people, and they just finished freeing themselves, or maybe they're still in the process. But you've just had a moment where Sylvester is the symbol of, of cultural success, and Harvey Milk is the symbol of political success, and at that point, you start to experience those losses. So Do You Want to Funk, Patrick was sick when they finished that song and that Sylvester went to Patrick and said, get out of bed, we're going to make this song. That was how Do You Want to Funk got actually completed. The other poignant piece of it to me is that what you're describing of dance music continuing and Sylvester continuing to make dance music with Patrick and others in San Francisco locally that people are dancing to across the country in gay clubs in particular. That's happening as people are dying. So there's this sort of refusal to have your joy uprooted entirely. You're going to still dance while this devastation is happening, while you're basically kind of in a plague, while you're you know, crossing people out of your address book every week, going to memorials and getting so tired of memorials that you can't go to them. All of that is happening while Sylvester's continuing to make that same kind of music for people to experience queer joy. Jeannie, you took care, you know, you helped take care of Sylvester when Sylvester got sick himself. When did you first notice there was something going on there? Well... He got sick. Now that I think about it and how everything transpired, um, he was getting his hair braided, and he was saying, Girl, I'm doing my will. I said, I thought you had a will already. And so uh, he says, Yeah, but he said, What do you want? So anyway, I um, you know, told him what I wanted and everything. But you know, people make their wills out when they're well, so I didn't think anything about it. But he had a sinus infection, and they did surgery. And I went with him. But when he first started getting sick, it was at a show that he and I did together. And he wasn't feeling good that night, you know, and he was losing a lot of weight and stuff. I still didn't think that much about it, you know. And uh, after that, when he had the surgeries, when he really declined a lot, you know, he just started to go downhill. 
And I remember telling him to call his mother because I was going in cooking for him. And he said, oh, girl, that smells so good. That's when I was like aware that it was a good thing for me to cook there so that he could smell it. And he goes, girl, you can cook really fast. He said, it just smells. My house smells so good. You know, that's when he really was sick. But then he would pop up. Um, AIDS is a really strange thing. It'll sometimes you're okay, and it's like nothing happened. You know, I'm all right. And uh, then sometimes you're just like, this is the end. And uh, I remember seeing Patty LaBelle, and um, she said, How's Sylvester? And I said, Oh, Patty, he's doing fine. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And I realized then that she didn't really know about AIDS and how it affects people. And so I said, oh, Patty, sometimes he's okay, but then sometimes he's really, really sick. I said, but he's doing fine now. You should go and see him. And she said, okay. And I said, oh, Patty, I said, you don't know what this is going to do for him. And so we went to see Sylvester he called me later and said, girl, thank you. So he used to call me Sister Jeannie. And he said, Sister Jeannie, he said, that just meant everything to me. I said, I know, I know. At one point, he told me that he had no regrets. You know, in his last days, he said, I, I did everything the way I wanted to do it. And I have no regrets. I said, okay. I had never seen him cry. And, you know, he cried and we hugged and he just laid his head on my shoulder and he and he cried. And I said, it's okay. I said, let it go. But don't continue to cry. You know, let it go. I said, you lived your life. He said, I did everything I wanted to do. I said, that's the important thing. Sylvester, he was early in AIDS awareness, I would say, not necessarily AIDS activism, but a sort of form of activism that was talking about it when people weren't talking about it and raising money. He was doing fundraisers really early on for AIDS services. So he was really upfront with it, you know, whatever was going on with his own health. Before he got sick, he was doing a lot of, a lot of work to help our communities. And in the end, left his publishing and music and royalties to uh, AIDS organizations, where, which are still receiving his money. When he did get sick, he did not hide it. And one of the most beautiful things that I've encountered in his story is his decision to march in the Gay Freedom Day parade when he was very sick. And he knew what was happening. People around him knew what was happening. He didn't really decide till the last minute whether he was going to go to the parade. He was frail and in a wheelchair and, you know, did his best to, you know, put on a, a cowboy hat and, you know, decided that he was up for it. And he went out with, you know, friends by his side and pushing him through the parade they had me in a pink Cadillac. I remember that. And Sylvester was in front of me in a wheelchair. And his doctor was pushing him and a couple of friends around him. And before that, he told me I was at his house and he goes, I'm going to be in the parade. I said, really? Are you ready for this? He goes, yeah, it's time. So as we were going down the street, I saw people's faces, and they smiled. They were like, oh, there's Sylvester, because they saw the sign first. And then they looked and saw him in the wheelchair. I mean, all the way down the street, I saw people smile, and then they started to cry when they realized what they were looking at. It was just, oh, my God, it just tugged at my heart to see that, you know, because he was really tiny. What an incredibly brave thing for him to do. Yeah, it was very brave. That's why I asked him, was he prepared or was he ready to do something like that, 
to let the world know. He was a symbol of kind of the same thing that he'd always been a symbol of, which is, I'm not going to apologize for any of this. This is me. I'm going to be as real as I can possibly be. This is what this looks like. Before it was, this is what freedom looks like. This is what lack of apology looks like. This is what being whatever gender you want to be looks like. Now it was, this is what dying of AIDS looks like. And he was one among many, many people experiencing the same thing. He was not saying, I am the most important person with AIDS. He was saying, I am here. I know I'm an icon and I'm still shining. It's a sort of shocking and I guess maybe comforting thing at the same time. And very moving. I mean, I, I think he was an amazing person. And, uh, you know, Sylvester's always been a, a big inspiration for me, of course, vocal-wise. I mean, I'm someone who sings a lot in falsetto. And just getting to do this show and, and be learning more and, and learning more about Sylvester's story and a lot of these details, it's just been a great experience. And you've been a big part of that uh, with this amazing history that you've written Thank of, you. of him. I think it's amazing. You know, I, I still go out quite a bit. I still like a good party. And I'd say... Nine times out of 10, when I'm out, I hear Mighty Real. Nine times out of 10. What do you think keeps that song still pumping and still touching people's lives? I think part of it is Sylvester was ahead of things. He was ahead of talking about getting married to a man. He was gender fluid before we were using that term. He was black joy, queer joy. So I think part of what people respond to is a, a timelessness to the the sound of his voice and a, a sense that there's something very current about the way that it, it feels. And I think for people who know who he was and where he came from, I think people are responding to that as it's still our person. This was someone who did something for me. He did it for himself. I mean, he was a diva. But he showed me a way to do this, a way to commit to yourself and to refuse to be set aside, to sing out in whatever voice you've got. He showed me all that stuff. So when I hear it, like, I'm responding to that. I want to dance to that still. I want that inspiration to keep coming at me. And I want a particular queer version of that. And that's what he gives. After all this time and an effect he had on your life, what do you think overall Sylvester gave you? And what is his legacy to you? He gave me his love. That was what was most important to me. Because all of this now is just such a surprise. I never knew that he would become this famous or this popular, you know, in death. And it really makes me feel really good. And all these things that are happening now with the LBGTQ community a lot of it is because of him. The RuPaul's, Billy Porter's are able to be themselves, which is great, you know. And so his legacy lives on. I just think that if he had lived, he would just be bigger than life now. And he would teach these people really how to do it right, okay, and how it's supposed to be done because he did it first. Yeah, I mean, he's taught me so much about how to do it, you know, what a massive influence on me and what a pleasure it's been talking to you. Thank you so much for oh, my pleasure. sharing these stories. I'm so glad that you love him because he was the most amazing person beside my husband and God <laughs> in my life, <laughs> you know. It was a fantastic time. I want people to know what kind of person he was. He was just bigger than life. When he walked in a room, you knew somebody has arrived. And it was Sylvester. I want to give many thanks and much appreciation to the wonderful Jeannie Tracy for sharing memories of her friend Sylvester and to Josh Gamson, whose book, The Fabulous Sylvester, I'd recommend to anyone who wants to find out more about the life and times of this great diva. It's a fantastic read and really taught me so much that I didn't know about the scene and the time. It was as if Sylvester had stepped out of time, running ahead of it. He was almost a prophet of where culture was going. That's all for this time. 
Our next episode is available now, and I'm talking to this wonderful artist. You know, if I did a song about like loving eating pussy, do you know what I mean? We'd be like, great, this is great. Ding, ding, ding. That'll be a hit here, and we can, you know, we'll get on this station, and like, I'd be using my queerness to appeal to a certain demographic. And never really doing that. Maybe I should. <laughs> it sounds like a good idea for a song, to be fair. That was none other than Rebecca Lucy Taylor, aka Self Esteem, aka the Sally Bowles, to my MC in Cabaret. Definitely go and have a listen to that one. We talk all about her incredible song. I do this all the time. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and spread the word. Now, in homage to the fabulous Sylvester James, let's put on Mighty Real, crank it up, have a listen, and enjoy. Mm-hmm.